When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you this truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Pentecost is the birthday of the church. But what does that actually mean? Well, if we take these readings as we're given them, then it seems to me to be about truth. John or Jesus uses the word truth ten times in this last period of his life when he's talking to his disciples. And truth in its most obvious understanding is things as they really are. Not things as we'd like them to be or things as somebody says they should be, but things as they truly are, an honest, real experience of the way things are. And one of the explanations here is the fact that Peter, when he gets up to speak, quotes from the prophet, Joel. Now the prophets are central to the way that the, the, the Hebrews understood themselves to live and to be alive. But prophecy is not, as we've often taken it in, the, in, in our time, is a kind of uh, guess about the future, the sort of Nostradamus view. The prophets were never about that in ancient Hebrew. They were about telling the truth of how things are now and what that will mean. Usually because the people, it seems, were reluctant to do what they needed to do, it was the truth about what would happen if you don't do something. So the preeminent prophets, of course, in our time are environmental scientists who are not predicting some future, they're not telling us how we should live in any sort of moral way. They're just simply saying, this is the truth of the situation. 
If you continue, if we continue to do this, this is what will happen. That's what prophecy always was and it is at its best today. And one of the truths that John and the book of Acts want us to know is that God has continually been present and alive and working in the world. Even if it's not always obvious to us. Now this would have been obvious to anybody who heard the second chapter of Acts who was from a good Jewish background because of all the illusions in it. Like the first thing that happens is the sound like a violent rushing wind. And any good Jew would know immediately what that referred to. The wind that rushed across the surface of the deep in the great Genesis, the first great Genesis creation story. One thing this story wants to tell us is that whatever's happening here is a continuation of God's creating work. The rushing wind. And then of course there's tongues as if they're fire. And that brings immediately to mind, for a good Jew, the story of the call of Moses and the burning bush and the great exodus of the people out of slavery. It's the continuation of God's movement towards freedom. So these aren't just, as we see them in the, in the paintings, a sort of little bits of fire and, and just strange phenomena as we would see it because we don't know the background. This is part of a continuing work of God. And everybody heard the, the words, the, the great deeds of power, as the, as the people say, in their own language. It's a kind of reversal of the great legend from Genesis of the Tower of Babel. When the gods, and in the first part of Genesis, God is often spoken of in plural. We have this problem, we have that problem, we need to do this. And we decided to scatter the people and they began to speak different languages. It's a really good legendary um, guess at why it is that the world is full of people who can't understand each other. It's the coming together where everyone can understand what's going on. It's the beginning, uh, it's, the, it's the continuation of what God has always done, which is trying to build what Martin Luther King always called the beloved community. So these are continuations of things. They're not just special little signs. They mean something deep. And because it's not our, our culture and our background, we don't necessarily quickly pick it up. The truth is like the ocean. It's one of the ways this text is telling us. The truth is that there are storms on top of the ocean. And they're real enough. But there's a deeper thing going on at the bottom of the ocean. There's the great... Um, the, the, the great movements of water, the great uh, swirling of the earth that is unaffected by the storms. Whatever the weather is up there, there's something else going on. There's a deeper truth. I mean, we understand this, sadly, when we start to get a cough. If you cough for long enough, eventually you'll have to go and see a doctor and discover that you don't have a cough. The cough is a symptom of something else and hopefully something that can be treated, but sometimes not. And we know that there's a deeper truth going on and sometimes we're frightened to go. You know, we find that lump somewhere, we find uh, something that we didn't expect and we want to put it off because we're, it's just a little thing. And it might be, but it might be affected of a deeper truth. If we do this all the time in Australian culture where we talk about a racist act at the football against a footballer or against a, a, an official. The idea that uh, there are a few bad apples rather than 
looking deeper and finding a great stream of racism in our culture, right back from well before the white Australia policy. It takes terrible courage to look at that and see that the truth of that. But there's other things too, like the truth that our government is so cruel to refugees and new arrivals and has been again in the budget. And yet there's a deeper truth that people in the community, in groups like Circle of Friends and all across the community, embracing people, the people, the people from Biloela embracing that young Tamil family who are now still obviously on Christmas Island. There's a deeper truth. Sure, the government can play off electoral politics and play off our worst fears, but there's a deeper truth of Australians embracing and holding people in love and hospitality. And this is what I think is at the bottom of Jesus saying to his disciples, look, they're wrong. The world is wrong about sin because they do not believe in me, Jesus said. And believe is always better translated as trust. The world is wrong about sin because there's no trust. Sin is not something that alienates us from God. That's not possible according to all the way through the Gospel of John. That doesn't make any sense to Jesus or to John's writing. What sin does is alienates us from each other when there's no trust that we have amongst ourselves. When we don't trust our own self, we're alienated from the inner part of ourselves and our community. Jesus said, they're wrong about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer. Being in a right relationship with God has got nothing to do with a set of rituals or of paying some sort of debt to God or fulfilling an obligation like turning up to church services, for example. That's got nothing to do with it. The righteousness is about relating. It's about deep relationship. You are in a righteous relationship with the people you love because you're constantly loving them and they're constantly loving you. You're giving and they're giving. It's about intimate friendship with God. That's all the way through the Gospel of John. And they're wrong about judgment too because the ruler of this world has been condemned, Jesus says. Judgment is not about being condemned by God, which you sense a lot in the, uh, in the people who are attacking Jesus. It's about God already constantly condemning evil and injustice. God's presence and activity in the world is already ongoing. Even though all through church history, we have often not seen it. Great chunks of our lives could go like that. There's a terrible uh, bunch of letters that came out after the death of Mother Teresa, which expressed her sense of alienation from God for great chunks of her life, even though we know her to be a saintly woman who did enormous amount of good for the poor of India and across the world as, as her sister spread out. But her own experience was of great periods of darkness, what St John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul, That even in that, she believed God still to be active in her life, in the lives of the sisters she worked with and in the poor that they worked with. Well, since it's Pentecost and those things Jesus was saying to that group of people in that time, 
where there was these rigid understandings of what God was going to do and not going to do and people who were going to be condemned and not condemned. What, what would it mean for us today to say, what, what are we wrong about? In the church, I mean, given that it's our birthday. Well, I think one of the things we're wrong about is worship services. Worship services are to church like a family dinner is to family. They're good, they're worth doing, they're worth doing regularly, but if there's no family, it's not going to work. It's just show. It's just performance. It's got to be something deeper and realer. It's got to be the work of the family is doing the shopping, cleaning the house, making the arrangements to who's going to take who to soccer, all of that. That's what makes a family. Not that special dinner where everybody's sitting up there looking smart. And we've all been to those, haven't we? You know, where you have to say, oh, Auntie so-and-so is coming, so we'll sit there quietly and we'll play happy families. But we're not a happy family. The work of family is different. And it's the same with church. This is good what we do. And we should keep doing it. And we, ha- we hopefully will. But this isn't church. This is an expression of one part of being church. Church is what we do the rest of the time. Church is what we do in that mess of most of the week in Hope's Cafe and goodies and all the chaos of that. That's church. It's not the only way of church. But the things that you and I do in our daily life with people, that's how we build church. So we're wrong if we think worship services are church. They're just the family dinner of church. Do you want to have your family dinner? Sure you do if you love them. Do you want to do it regularly? Sure you do. Do you want to do it well? Sure you do. Do you want to have the best food you can? Sure. You do. And on special occasions, you do even special food. But don't pretend that that's the be-all and end-all. And the church has done that. In my time, it's done that. In the 1980s, the United Church in South Australia had something to between 35 and 45, I can't really remember, youth workers working in local churches, working with young people within and outside the church. When t- things got tight and we started to reduce our budgets, the first thing we dumped was youth workers. There are now none, as I'm aware of, maybe one or two um, in, in the church now. There are a few other kinds of workers, but no youth workers in the same way. And guess what? There's hardly any young people in our churches. We dumped something that was really important because we thought the most important thing is we've got to pay for what we do on Sunday morning and the rest of it can... Well, that's not really that important. I reckon there's a second thing we're wrong about. We're wrong about local congregations. It's the only way to organise the church. We have to have a congregation here. They have to have one over there, two and a half kilometres away in Kent Town. There's another one two kilometres away in Paynham. There's another one just over two kilometres away in Morialta. There's another one less than two kilometres away in Burnside. There used to be one in Kensington Gardens up here. Let's not mention all the others that used to be here that came to be a part of our congregation here. And that's without talking about the ones like Scots Church and Pilgrim Church. And that's only the Uniting Church. We're even closer to some of our Anglican brothers and sisters on Kensington Road and the Catholics up on McGill Road. We're wrong if we think that the congregation is God's idea. It is a way of organising church. That's not the only way. And we're in a point in the Uniting Church where we're going to have to rethink all of that. And that could be frightening or it could be exciting. It shouldn't be too frightening. We've done it in the past. I mean, Jeffrey's history will tell you, if you read it, how many times other churches have become a part of this church. The building across the road, Wesley Methodist, became a part of this congregation. The Adelaide East Parish. parish, And, and, and lots of others, even in the last few years. The United Church itself. 
was a reorganising of how we do church. So we're wrong if we think congregation is the way to do church. It is a way of doing church. And I think the final thing before I finish, the final thing we're wrong about is that the church is in trouble. I could quote the statistics till they come out of my ears, and I do. We're half the size we were in the Uniting Church than we were 20 years ago. Each of our denominations, Congregational, Methodist and Presbyterian, were falling in numbers before we joined the Uniting Church in 1977. The church across the world is radically changed. The biggest part of the church is now in Africa, not in Europe. Most people who are part of the Christian church in the world do not speak English as a first language. The body of the, the, the church of Christ, as we understand it, the church... You okay, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> now, I know they're horrible, aren't they? Um, the, the church is not, as an institution, is not in health, in good health. We are really struggling in South Australia. I mean, look at the size of our building and how many of us are here. I know a number of us are not here. There's quite a few people sick today and a few people away. But we know that we're not the healthiest congregation in South Australia. Most of us are old. In fact, we're all old here. Let's be honest, today. I mean, if you don't want to own up to that, that's fine. You do live your fantasy. But I think we're all old, <laughs> aren't we? And that's okay. Nothing wrong with being old. But that's the institution. We're wrong if we think that means the church is failing. We're wrong if we think that means the church is dead because the church is not the institution. This is a way of being church. The church is the worldwide mystical body of Christ that continues to grow everywhere and always within us as individuals. It's sometimes been big. It's sometimes been terribly small. This congregation has not always been thriving. Churches all over the place have come and gone. There are buildings all over here that have been turned into homes that were church buildings. And that's fine. That's the way things change. The house you're living in now one day will be bulldozed when somebody builds something much better because they think yours is rubbish, even though you think it's fine. And the, the, the house that you're in wasn't there before because there was something else there, either another house or, as Peter and Alice and I were talking this week, a bunch of cows. That's the way things go. But the church of God, the community of the faithful, continues and grows. We don't, it's not our job to worry about the future of the church. It's our job to think about it and plan and organise it and rethink it. And that's what we're going to be doing in the next few years in South Australia. You, you may know that we did a major a building report uh, last year that looked at every building in the state that we own and what they needed to have done to them to bring them up to code. And we need about uh, $32 million to do that, which we don't have. And, of course, some of our buildings we don't really need anymore and shouldn't be taken up to code. They should be done something else with. But we've got some major decisions to make. But we're not going to make them well if we think, oh, what we've got to do is worry about it. It's all falling apart. We've got to look after it. We'd make the decisions much better if we said, this is the work of God in the world. We've done it this way. We used to do it that way. We've done it that way in another part of the world. We've done it this way over here. What is God calling us to do? Not out of fear, but out of hope. So we're wrong if we think the church is failing. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters, your daughters, your sons and your daughters, the painting, shall prophesy. 
your sons and your daughters will tell the truth in great courage sometimes. And your young men will see visions of the future. And your old men shall dream dreams. I'm going to guess the old women and the young women too. Even upon the least, the slaves, all men and women in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy, they will truth tell. That's our call.